The majority of the interview for this episode was recorded via Zoom on March 18, 2022. Some parts were re recorded by the interviewee on May 18 and 19, Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Against Japanism Podcast. Today we have Setsu Shigematsu joining us to talk about the history of feminist and women's liberation movements in Japan. We specifically discuss the legacy of anti patriarchal and anti imperialist revolutionary feminism, which Setsu calls full spectrum radical feminism. As distinct from liberal and conservative feminisms that seek to reproduce rather than challenge patriarchy and imperialism. We first discuss the history of feminists in pre World War II Japan, such as Kan no Sugako and Kaneko Fumiko, who critiqued the family system and its link with the emperor system of the pre war Japanese state. As well as the reality of Japanese imperialism today, its oppression of non Japanese women, and its relation with US imperialism. We then move on to discuss the post war period and the women's liberation movement of the 1970s, known as Uman Libu. Unlike the previous feminist movements in Japan that refer to women as Fujin, As an equivalent of lady, or more neutrally as Jose, the Uman Libu activists use the term onna, which is less bourgeois than Fujin and more erotic than Jose. The term onna thus signified the movement's opposition to respectability politics of bourgeois feminism and its particular position on sexual liberation that centered women's sexuality. Contrary to how men in the late 60s New Left understood free sex as free access to women's bodies. The term also represented the movement's militant stance against the heteronormative and patriarchal institution of family that constrained women's sexuality and reproductive freedom. Like the radical feminists in pre war Japan, the Uman Libu activists. Also, saw the connection between the heteropatriarchal family and Japanese imperialism. Between the marriage system represented in the idealized figure of Japanese woman as good wife, wise mother, Ryosai Kenbo, and the colonial prostitution, such as the comfort woman system during World War II, as well as the post war sex tourism in which Japanese men sought sexual service from Asian women. In order to put their politics into practice, the Uman Libu activists established communes across Japan, including in Hokkaido and Okinawa, to live and raise children together. However, while they may have been successful in challenging patriarchy and heteronormativity, their avowed anti imperialist politics did not always align with their action that reproduced the colonial dynamic. With the local woman they were working with. 
We discuss woman Libu's perspective on violence and its solidarity with women who kill their children. While the movement did not advocate for violence against children, it challenged the dominant narrative that placed the blame on the woman instead on the patriarchal society that drove them to commit such crimes. For the women Libu activists, these incidents show the necessity of reproductive justice and society where women want to raise children. The woman Libu was also in solidarity with women involved in the United Red Army, which is known for the Asama Sanso incident and the killings of its members in 1972. Similar to their solidarity with women who kill their children, the women Libu activists did not condone the killings, but they were sympathetic towards the women in the URA, such as Toyama Mieko, who was punished for her feminine outlook, and Nagata Hiroko, who was demonized by the media for her leadership role in the killings, disproportionately to her male comrades. While the women Libu activists did not share the URA's politics, their critical support for these women. Drew the ire of the Japanese state and became the target of police surveillance and repression. Finally, but not least, we situate the legacy of Shigenobu Sako in the history of full spectrum radical feminism in Japan. Shigenobu is a former leader of the Japanese Red Army and political prisoner criminalized for her solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. Scheduled to be released from prison on May 28, 2022. Both Fetsu and I are involved in an international campaign to reframe the media narrative about her legacy through the Olive Tree International Collective with Fusako's daughter and previous guest of this podcast, Mei Shigenobu. To conclude this episode, We discuss how Fusako's internationalist commitment to the Palestinian people challenged both Japanese imperialism and the patriarchal family system it's founded on, as well as what her experience tells us about the role of women in political violence and armed struggle. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please subscribe to my Patreon or make a one time donation to my GoGet funding page. Both are linked in the show note. Alright, l here is an Against Japanese podcast interview with Setsu Shigematsu. Enjoy. Hi, Kota. Thanks for having me on your podcast. My name is Setsu Shigematsu, and I'm a scholar activist, feminist mother, writer, and a filmmaker. I wrote Scream from the Shadows, the women's liberation movement in Japan. And co edited Militarized Currents Towards a Decolonized Future in Asia and the Pacific with my colleague at UCLA, Chamorro scholar Keith Camacho. In terms of films, I had the privilege of making a feature length documentary about the prison industrial complex and women in the abolition movement that features Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and Susan Burton. And currently, I'm making a film called Abolish Ice. Adelanto and All Border Prisons with scholar activists Cynthia Martinez and Mayan Denton. Great. Thank you so much, Setsu, for coming on the show. My first question is How did 
pre and post war Japanese feminists address the question of heteropatriarchy and what were their limits? Well, this is a great question and jumping off point for our conversation today. Um, but before uh, we dive in to uh, all of this uh, history and politics, I would like to first underscore that um, in any discussion about feminisms, or in this case, um, what we typically refer to as Japanese feminisms, I would want to underscore the heterogeneity of feminisms and talk about feminisms in the plural, because I don't want to homogenize all feminists in Japan. And following the spirit of your podcast, it's also better for us to speak of feminists in Japan versus Japanese feminists, because uh, some of the feminists I'd want to highlight today are anti-imperialists and even uh, we might even describe them as anti-nationalists. And uh, there are many feminists in Japan who critique Japanese heteropatriarchy, but they are not Japanese. For example, you know, Zainichi, a uh, feminist in Japan whose work that um, has been really important in pointing out to many, you know, quote unquote, Japanese feminists, their prob- the, the problems of their nationalist assumptions. So I just wanted to flag that as we j- dive into this discussion about feminisms in Japan. And so now to respond to your question about, um, you know, pre and post-war Japan, you know, feminists in Japan, um, you know, this would be covering, of course, hundreds, if not thousands of feminists. Uh, so probably to, in today's discussion, we'll probably just focus on uh, a few. And actually, since my um, research has been mostly about uh, looking into radical feminisms, I will, I'm sure, spend most of my time today talking about various uh, radical feminists and radical feminist movements um, and the genealogies that we can trace through you know, history in Japan. And so regarding um, heteropatriarchy, um, although this might sound surprising or even contradictory, I would say that there are some feminists who are oftentimes against patriarchy, but they have not always critiqued or criticized or, or challenged heteronormativity and the heteronormativity of patriarchy. So, you know, what I mean by that is that not all feminists, especially, let's say, if we take the category of liberal feminists, are always against the you know, heteropatriarchy insofar as um, they have not necessarily been against the institution of marriage. Um, and oftentimes, as we know, in history, Japanese history, um, the marriage system has been very, uh, you know, patriarchal and based on a patrilineal property, I guess, uh, exchanges and handing down um, property to the eldest son. And so I think that, you know, feminists are generally, you know, understood to be, you know, against this kind of uh, sexism. But one problem of a kind of, I think, liberal feminist model is that some women want to have the power of the patriarch as opposed to dismantling patriarchy. So, um, In some of my work, my current work, what I'm doing is I'm emphasizing the differences and distinctions among different feminists, including those feminists who were not opposed to marriage versus those feminists. uh, Many feminists have been, you know, against marriage. Um, And then if 
a feminist is, for example, then not against marriage, then is she then reproducing, you know, Japanese patriarchy? Or if, you know, if she is reproducing, uh, you know, patriarchy by simply being married, or can you be, you know, married and then not produce kind of these patriarchal relations within the marriage? So I think that these are all questions uh, that have been explored and and dialogued and debated among uh, feminists in Japan. But I think that one of the aspects and characteristics of uh, of this long legacy of feminists in Japan is that many of them did critique the marriage system, especially for the way in which the marriage system in Japan has been tied to um, and is based on this kind of family registration system as the dominant default. And in the family registration system, typically the man is registered as the head of the household and the man has um, dominant uh, legal power to determine, you know, who are the offspring and um, and so on and so forth, including, you know, previous laws that uh, would criminalize women for committing adultery, but not men. And so these kinds of aspects of the history of, you know, marriage in Japan um, many scholars and researchers have argued that this uh, particular family system and marriage system has been such that, you know, monogamy was, you know, required of the woman, but not the man. So in that sense, um, there have been many critiques of uh, feminist critiques as well of the marriage system and critiquing what we now refer to as heteropatriarchy um, as uh, a point which Japanese feminists have taken up as a political aspect of how, um, you know, the social reproduction um, continues. So um, a couple more things I guess I could say about pre-war and post-war feminists would be, uh, for example, you know, there are very famous feminists like Hiratsuka Daicho, who was the founder of the uh, feminist magazine called Seito. And at first, Hiratsuka Daicho you know, held more kind of anarcho-feminist uh, beliefs. She was a, for, at first against marriage and said that, you know, um, you know, love as she conceived of it, you know, would, would not be able to be really uh, realized in that marital system. But later in her life, her politics changed and she became more conservative and more pro-state. And even um, as the feminist scholar Sonia Rang has pointed out, even pro-imperial family. So I um, would want to contrast feminists like Hiratsuka Daicho to those uh, other uh, more radical anti-imperialist feminists uh, in the pre-war period who I describe as full-spectrum feminists, such as Kanno Sugako, uh, for example, who was an anti-imperialist. And she was married, but she got divorced, which was a very rare, I think, uh, thing to do uh, at that time. And then she had three lovers. And even among the leftist um, comrades that she was working with, you know, they also did not necessarily uh, appreciate the fact that, you know, this kind of having moving from having one lover uh, to another, um, she was, you know, uh, lovers with uh, Kotoku uh, Shusui, uh, that, you know, she was considered like being promiscuous for for even uh, that. And so I think that even within these kind of leftist um, leftist uh, circles and communities, 
this whole issue of uh, sexual politics was uh, something that was a contentious uh, arena. Um, and we know that Kano Sugako was an anti-imperialist and uh, famous for being uh, executed by the Japanese government for the fact that she was, you know, indicted for plotting to kill the emperor. And so in this uh, sense, I think that what is really unique and interesting about the history of uh, feminists in Japan is that we do have this legacy of those like Kano Sugako and also Kaneko Fumiko, who also I consider to be a, this kind of radical feminist who criticized the marriage system and uh, refused these kind of gender conforming uh, ways of being. And she ended up partnering with a Korean anarchist, uh, Yul Park, and um, they also were imprisoned. And she uh, allegedly committed suicide in prison uh, but I think that this kind of legacy of women who gave their lives to challenge the system is, I think, something that in my work I seek to highlight because not only are they rejecting the marriage system, but they are feminists who could see the links between the marriage system and the national system of uh, Japanese imperial ideology and they sought to challenge those systems completely, even if it meant um, being imprisoned, losing their freedom and losing and giving up their lives. And so these kind of links between the family system and the imperial system um, is an aspect of, of feminism in Japan that I think um, perhaps make uh, some of it's a rejection of the marriage system and heteropatriarchy, not only distinctive, but really having um, these kinds of far-reaching significance. Um, for example, during wartime, there was a nationalist rhetoric whereby women were being encouraged to bear babies and then offer them up to the emperor, who in turn was represented as though, you know, he loved these, you know, newborn babies that were then supposed to grow up and be soldiers and fight in uh, the Imperial Army. So um, scholars uh, like, for example, Vera Mackey also has pointed out that, you know, women were supposed to be seen as citizens of the kind of national patriarch, uh, which was the emperor. So in this sense, I think that it's important to understand that for feminists who were anti-imperialist, they could see these links between the marriage system and the national system and this larger imperial system. And there was a need to challenge um, challenge the system at all of these levels. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, especially thank you for pointing out about um, sort of the question of Japanese-ness and that this podcast was founded on and the fact that yeah, a lot of uh, feminists in Japan opposed the uh, imperialist nationalism of uh, Japan and the fact that a lot of feminists and women in Japan are not even ethnically Japanese or non-citizens. And this question of non-Japanese migrants and immigrants in Japan are very uh, important to this, to this podcast as well. And I would say sort of this question of uh, racialized oppression, national oppression pertaining to Japanese imperialism and neocolonialism today is what communists say, primary contradiction. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I keep bringing up in episodes about the, the migrant struggle in Japan or on Nukon and, you know, incarceration, criminalization of migrants in Japan. And uh, even from a working class perspective, uh, a lot of workers in Japan are not, you know, most, some of the most exploited and oppressed workers in Japan today are not Japanese. So it does tie into the question of class as well, but also to women's oppression. Uh, I, I discussed previously in this podcast, uh, um, you know, a lot of women detainees in the migrant detention. Um, I was part of the campaign to free Patochan. She was a um, Filipina uh, trans woman, woman from the Philippines uh, who was detained, detained by the Nukam, but also other another Sri Lankan woman who was killed almost a year ago, uh, Wishima Sandamali, who was, I believe, fleeing domestic violence. So, yeah, these things are very closely intertwined. And yeah, I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Another thing that I that I thought of is that, um, you know, often you point out in your book that feminism is often, has been historically seen as an import from the outside it's a falling ideology right mm-hmm. and it's similar to how communism and revolutionary politics in general are seen as yeah it's an outsider like alien ideology right mm-hmm. whereas the conditions that necessitate these these revolutionary politics are are you know obviously present in japan like patriarchy capitalist exploitation and colonial oppression and yeah, like these things are really what drive people to progressive revolutionary politics and struggle to change reality. Uh, but it's also another sort of push of like some people might react to that and say, okay, Japanese is very, you know, feminism is, is Japanese, right? It's sort of like actually some Japanese feminists, feminists in Japan did sort of turn to Japanese-ness and supported imperialism, like Japanese imperialism. And you also point out in the book, right, that uh, there is a question of Japanese imperialism, but also there's a Western imperial- imperialism and sort of this imperialism as a system it's, uh, which different superpowers, like economic superpowers, monopoly capitalist states compete for the share of the world uh, as Lenin theorized. So that sort of Japan's sort of position in that order is makes the discretion quite complex, right? Yes. Absolutely. Uh-huh. For sure. No, and so, uh, well, thank you for linking, um, I think, these questions of feminism and uh, exploitation, women's liberation and labor migration, uh, you know, into this conversation, because uh, the way I approach my scholarship um, is very much motivated by, you know, looking to histories of rebellions Um to help us understand uh, how we can um, engage in transformative work in the present, in addition to, um, you know, challenging these legislative state governmentality about, you know, Nukon, as you just, as you pointed out, because I think these critiques of uh, immigration or Nukon, as you say, uh, also definitely date back to the post-war movements uh, which criticized the way in which um, a new a neo kind of imperialism and neo forms of colonialism were happening um, and the ways in which 
migrants to Japan who are um, and non-Japanese are criminalized and racialized. And as you point out, uh, targeted um, in ways uh, that uh, we can understand, I think, through a uh, racialized, classed and gendered lens. Yes, and very much imperialism is a, it's an economic system as well, right? Like there's a kind of always confusion where, especially it when it pertains to Japan, right? There's the emperor system. Mm-hmm. And so like imperialism sort of kind of gets defined as sort of like dictionary definition of simply this military power uh, headed by this emperor conquering other countries, which is obviously an important aspect of it, but also... I subscribe to so Lenin's definition of imperialism as a merger between finance capital and industrial capital. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just it's the relations of exploitation that spans globally. And yeah, labor exploitation is a very central to it. And even during, mm-hmm. during the war, like the slave labor of Korean and other colonized peoples. And even though it was reorganized after the war, I think, Japan is still very much a wealthy imperialist country that relies on uh, resource extraction and yeah exploitation of labor from the global south. So um, yeah, my podcast is really wants to maintain the internationalist perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, how yeah imperialism functions that way as an economic system as well as political and cultural. But right. But here's another question of like. Uh, U.S. imperialism, right? It's so Japan's relationship with the U.S. and the, those on the left really have a different perspective about Japan. Like some, you see Japan as a puppet of U.S. I think it's more, you know, I don't think Japan is a puppet per se, but more of an ally and uh, sort of like the block of Western imperialist powers uh, led by led by the U.S. Nonetheless, but um, I think. The, the question of U.S. imperialism came to really forefront in the post, uh, post-war period, right? Mm-hmm. And really, uh, feminists in post-war Japan really grappled with this question as well. So, yeah, I want us to move on to the, the next question. Yeah, so, like I said, your book uh, is about feminists in post-war Japan, um, mm-hmm. but specifically this one movement called Women's Women's Libu. Mm-hmm. It's a Japanese version of Women's Liberation, a short form of Women's mm-hmm. Liberation. Uh, what was this movement's significance in the larger history of feminists and or women's movements in Japan? How did they theorize womanhood and sexual liberation differently from these previous movements? Well, Umanib is, uh, I uh, describe it as a radical feminist movement that exploded onto the Japanese political scene in the fall of 1970, um, although its earliest cells began to form um, sometime in the spring of 1970. It was a new kind of women's liberation movement characterized by emphasizing uh, women's sexuality. And uh, this emphasis was also... um, apparent in their adoption of the word or term onna, which is, um, you know, a term for woman that refuses what we would call in today's uh, lingo, refuses respectability politics of previous women's liberation movements that use the terms such as fujin kaiho, 
whereas the term Fujin would be more equivalent to our word lady, or they also even shifted away from the, the term or the phrase Jose Kaiho and Jose would also be a more neutral term meaning woman. And so the shift to this uh, political subject of onna was significant because it highlighted the sexuality of women's identity. And the adoption of this word was linked to the affirmation of uh, women's sexuality and the need to liberate um, how women's sexuality has, has been and continues to be confined and used by men for you know, reproducing offspring under a patriarchal ES system or family system. Um, or as the activists of this movement criticized that they were uh, confined and being regulated within this kind of binary system, whereby to be a quote unquote good woman, you were, you know, to be um, what uh, along the lines of Yosai Kembo, right? Uh, good wife, wise mother, that would be the, the, the track for good women to stay on. Or if you fell out of that track and, you know, had become a sex worker, um, they critique that as being, um, you know, used like a benjo, like a, as we know, the Japanese kind of word for like the Japanese style toilet. Um, and they, re- they criticize the system in which men would use women um, as kind of benjos, as a kind of public receptacle for their uh, sexual desires. And this kind of critique of, you know, comparing how, you know, the good women were supposed to be the wives, wives and mothers uh, compared to, you know, women who were considered the bad women, um, you know, prostitutes and sex workers. They problematized the configuration because um, this was a configuration that, you know, men had devised, but then devalued, um, devalued the bad women and then were confining women's sexuality to uh, the family system. So, these three, the three key words I would say of the Umanib movement were sex, onna, and eros. And the third term, eros, was to affirm the desire of onna, something to be liberated. And this, the shift to terms like onna, sex, and eros affirmed a return to the body in opposition to how the modern patriarchal society sought to denigrate and control women's sexuality and desires to serve uh, the patriarchal state. And to add on one more qualifier about um, their emphasis on sexual liberation um, would be that their notion of sexual liberation was not just about free sex. And they actually critiqued the counterculture free sex that was going on in the late 60s um, and early 70s. Um, because they thought that that was more advantageous uh, to uh, how men were pushing for free sex. And the activists of Umanib forwarded a systemic critique of, uh, I would say, uh, systems of gendered state violence. And so when they talked about sexual liberation, they were not they were not just talking about it as in these interpersonal you know, sexual relations, but talking about how, um, for example, in the famous manifesto of the movement written by Tanaka Mitsu called Benjo Kara no Kaiho, Liberation from the Toilet, um, would be a translation. Uh, Tanaka Mitsu decried how the structure of Japanese imperialism was a system that ensured the so-called chastity of the wives of Japanese soldiers through the creation of the systemic rape of colonized women enabled uh, by the military sexual slavery system, euphemistically called the, the comfort woman system. 
But this kind of binary system of the allegedly good women versus the bad women is the kind of uh, gendered ideological structure that this radical feminist movement sought to reject and repudiate. And so in this way, even the kind of militant language that they were using in their manifestos and in their placards during their demonstrations, one of the famous placards, it said a wife and a prostitute are both raccoons in the same den. And so this kind of way in which they were critiquing this entire gender system of uh, casting some women as good women and other women as bad women was really pointing out how um, how this kind of sexual values of dominant society were um, were oppressive to all women um, and that, you know, women who are even considered the good women should realize their complicity in this larger system of of harm and uh, oppression. Yes, I think this critique of the family system or the family in general is very yeah, unique about this movement and how family and prostitution are basically the same. And, you know, there are feminists who critique uh, prostitution, but not many do the same for the family. So I think it's, it's, this is a sort of refreshing perspective. And yeah, like the sort of the question of family abolition has not really been addressed in, in the communist politics and it's kind of really interesting uh, to think about. And there's an article by uh, Alison Escalante. She's the host of Red Menace podcast. And she wrote an um, article for Cosmonaut called uh, The Family is Dead, Long Live the Family. And mm-hmm. sort of building on the con- uh, what Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto about, uh, you know, for a lot of proletarians and oppressed working class people, families already abolished and the experience of families are very different to each class and other forms of oppression and you know if you think about like migrant families right like the, at the separated at the border mm-hmm. like it, it is true that we don't even have to abolish family like capitalism already abolishing family for these these working class people so yeah it, it is a little bit tangent but to to bring it back to the woman's libis critique of this family, I think it's a, it's a really yeah it opens up a whole new question that is that's not really talked about. I mean, I, I'm married myself, so I can't really be a hypocrite. I do subscribe to to this bourgeois family in a way, but in Japan, it also has a different significance, right? Like it's the family registration system, and you can't really even be registered as individuals, right? So, which is sort of like a hallmark of the bourgeois democracy and you know the supposedly democratic system that uh, enshrines the individuals as a as a uh, as a sacred as you are but you know there's sort of like remnants of fascism from the from the pre-war period still surviving in japan in the form of uh, koseki right mm-hmm. definitely no and i think that what you're bringing up about the fact that you know many uh, communists and marxists did not have uh, a thorough critique of the family system or even the ideologies that maintain right our sensibilities and um, assemblages of affect uh, that are oftentimes very deep and almost unquestioned in terms of like these concepts of blood-based right family lines and 
lineages and whatnot. So I do think that, you know, hopefully later on in our discussion today, um, you know, I would like to even highlight um, some concepts of family by other feminists that we'll talk about uh, later on in our conversation that uh, move beyond blood-based family concepts. Yes, certainly. As you describe in your book, women's rib activists also extended their solidarity beyond uh, middle-class Japanese women to criminalize the woman and specifically campaigned in support of women who killed their children. Why were the questions of criminality and violence important in the politics of a woman's rebu? Um, that was a great question. Uh, violence was important for uh, activists in women uh, and particularly uh, taken up by those like uh, Takeda Miyuki and Tanaka Mitsu, um, who was arguably the leading um, theorist or other people described her as the medium or miko of the spirit of the movement um, and offered a fascinating uh, kind of concept about uh, this kind of concept of on or grudge uh, that um, women can uh, carry with them in their bodies um, as a sense or source of anger against this kind of inter or transgenerational oppression that w- women have borne. So I find one of the most compelling aspects of Umanib is how was how they were not simply attempting to assert that women were victims or pure victims, but that women were at the same time, both oppressors and victims, specifically Japanese women, right? Being both uh, oppressors and victims because of their imperial uh, privilege um, through the modernization period when Japan sought to establish its empire. And that, um, of course, within Japan itself, they have kind of right uh, various kinds of uh, national and uh, class privilege. So what um, Umandib also, though, emphasized, interestingly, was that women had the potential power within themselves to revolt and revolt violently against an unjust system. And uh, Tanaka Mitsu talked about this kind of untapped violence within women's bodies, which is opposite of how so many other previous women's movements and mothers' movements and were trying to empower and legitimate women's recognition by asserting women were peaceful, essentially peaceful, contributing citizens, and therefore good, and therefore should be um, given you know, greater uh, acknowledgement and um, respect. So it was, again, this idea of, you know, uh, these good women who were um, basically uh, advocating for peace. But in this sense, Uma Nib have a, had a very different response to uh, criminalize women, specifically kogoroshi onna, uh, women, uh, which could be translated women who killed their own children. And in the beginning of the movement, they were organizing um, in support Um, not that they were endorsing women who uh, killed their children or, you know, left their children. Um, You know, there was this uh, phenomenon of coin locker babies where women were leaving, uh, you know, infants and because they couldn't take care of them. Um, They were not endorsing or greeting with these actions, but what they did in response was they refused to condemn these mothers and asked instead what were the structural conditions that led women to act out in this way? Um, and they even said that this is 
um, almost unnatural in a way, uh, or if, if not unnatural, this was because of these uh, structural conditions whereby women were being isolated and alienated um, to this extent that they would act out in this way. And because um, violence by individual women was criminalized at this time through all of this uh, media sensationalism around um, Kogoroshi Onna, women who killed their children, Umanib activists generated this counter discourse um, against this condemnation and against this criminalization of violent women. And I describe this in my book as a kind of proto-abolitionist feminism. And I call it a kind of proto-abolitionist feminism because abolitionist feminism is a um, you know feminist movement and critique that is becoming more prevalent in this current moment that is really uh, analyzing the entire carceral state and the carceral system that uses prisons and policing to uphold uh, the current status quo and to un- uphold current like capitalist property relations. And so even though Umanib might not have gone so far as to completely, um, you know, try to dismantle the criminal legal system in Japan, what they were doing was at the discursive level, they were rejecting the way in which media and the common sense and the legal system were individually um, targeting these women as though, you know, they should be entirely condemned because they were going, you know, of course, against um, the grain of how women were supposed to be nurturing, peaceful and, you know, self-sacrificing to reproduce the family system. And so in this sense, um, this organizing around women who were acting out in these violence ways, I think was also one of the interesting features of this movement. Yes, uh, yeah, I think it's really important to point out that they're, they're not like, to be honest, this part was really like, <laughs> it made me really think and, you know, almost had a sort of this is a reaction, like what they, they thought it was okay to kill children, but it's really important to emphasize that they were not necessarily calling for a woman to do that, right? Like it's the, it was a sort of empathy towards the conditions that that made this this act possible, right? Like sort of the root cause of uh, what drive these women to do this, and it was also part of the, their bigger politics of reproductive justice, right? They also campaigned against eugenics act, uh, I yes. believe, was passed by socialist government, nonetheless. And um, yeah, maybe you can talk about that sort of broader the politics of uh, yeah reproductive uh, justice. Yes, that's a great uh, point that you brought up because um, one of the other, uh, I think, uh, interesting characteristics of Uma Nib compared to uh, many forms of, um, for example, in the U.S., um, abortion rights, uh, feminist discourse, which um, emphasizes like the individual woman's right to choose in Japan, their slogan around reproductive justice um, was uh you know, let's build a society where women want to give birth. I'll just say that one more time. Let's build a society in which women want to give birth. So it again, you can see just even in this slogan, it was not about women's individual rights, like political rights per se, that's and it wasn't their focus, but towards really a systemic, uh, large scale change. And so the way in which uh, Uma Nib was focusing and 
before this this systemic societal critique was I think more along the lines of what we would call in this political moment, a more kind of transformative justice approach to reproductive justice, because rather than just emphasizing, um, you know, an individual or individual's criminalization or the attempting to to criminalize abortion for individual women, or as we're facing in this moment, even in the United States, right, the criminalization of any of those people who would even help women get an abortion. Um, It was saying we really need to um, uh, look at the entire society and think about what kind of, in what kind of society would people want to give birth as opposed to, um, and, and, and making uh, those conditions a reality as opposed to um, focusing on this kind of repressive criminalization of uh, this act of abortion um, that women would be choosing because um, they did not want to, uh, you know, bear children at a given time. Yeah. And, a lot of women's rib activists built a commune, right? Like the, yes. where a woman can uh, bear a child and raise them collectively. Uh, yes. And so this was also, um, there were different kinds of political communes, I think, um, going on at this time, but uh, specifically in, you know, a case of Uman uh, Dib, there were um, women who were living together and helping each other raise uh their children together because they were doing so to precisely reject that kind of uh, patriarchal Japanese family system. And so in that sense, they were really um, trying to move out of that, that norm normativity. And um, sometimes, you know, those uh, there were a lot of challenges that come from, um, you know, kind of rejecting the family system. And I think one of the films that portray, um, even the backlash to that is um, this film that came out called uh, Looking for Fumiko. And it actually looks at a family in Hokkaido, um, whereby this couple refused to register their family in the, you know, koseki or family system. And so the children they had were being bullied by others because uh, the, the, the parents refused to uh, get married. And so in this way, we can see how this kind of uh, reproduction of this, you know, uh, very rigid and repressive forms of uh, family system reproduction is uh, carried out by, you know, quote unquote, regular citizens, even children, other children, teachers, um, you know, uh, so that this kind of heteronormative uh, family system is, you know, pervasive and we know um, is a, is a problem that persists to this day. Yeah. That's a, that's a really uh, interesting aspect of women's ribs uh, legacy and non-conventional non-heteronormative family is somewhat normalized in a lot of Western states, like, uh, you know, same sex marriage is, you know, I, I guess with the exception of Japan, uh, it became a norm, but there's also a debate of like to what extent this non-heteronormative marriage is actually dismantling the family itself, right? Like some queer theorists argue that the even same-sex marriage sort of reconstitute this family, uh, yes. this sort of bourgeois family form. And I'm wondering, like a lot of women's rib communes, you know, there you talk about this commune in Hokkaido, but there's also one in Okinawa. 
and, mm-hmm. and you know, both of these places are colonized places, like the settler colonies. Well, in case of Hokkaido, and you know, it's Okinawa is also occupied by both mm-hmm. the U.S. and Japan. And I'm wondering how successful were women's rebirth activists in overcoming this colonial relationship between the family system and the Japanese state. Yeah, I think that um, one of the very interesting films um, that was produced, uh, experimental films produced in this era by uh, Harakazuo, um, Kokushiteki Eros, uh, which could be translated very private Eros, actually shows the limitations of, you know, um, and the tensions of, uh, like, in particular, this Umandib activist who I mentioned earlier in uh, today's broadcast, Takeda Miyuki, it, it follows her to Okinawa, where she's engaging in, you know, non-heteronormative sexual relations, um, focusing specifically on, you know, her uh, love affair with this Black GI, and also her attempt to, like, adopt this uh, mixed Black baby from another Okinawan woman. But I think that what this film reveals, interestingly, is not just the contradictions and the limits, but the way in which there were activists um, like Takeda Miyuki, who was not critical um, or aware or conscious of the ways in which she, as a Japanese feminist, was reproducing these kind of colonial relations with Okinawan women, right? Or uh, vis-a-vis the place of Okinawa, because she had gone to Okinawa to also, you know, in a sense, experience what kind of conditions um, women who were working in the, you know, R&R clubs for U.S. soldiers, what kind of conditions they were living in um, as hostesses or sex workers. And so although she went, you know, with this kind of um, political intent, that form of solidarity was certainly not, I think, um, lived and carried out and continued in a way that I think in retrospect, we could be, uh, you know, highly critical of by pointing out that um, it was a form of feminism, but um, done in a modality that seemed to be very colonizing uh, vis-a-vis, you know, the conditions of Okinawans who are struggling to live there, um, who are caught up in the militarized um, uh, sexual entertainment industry that supports uh, the U.S. you know military occupation of of places like Okinawa. I was just going to make one more note on that topic of uh, you know the limits of Japanese radical feminists in Okinawa. I think I wrote about uh, that in um, an essay called "Intimacies of Imperialism." So uh, it does critique these kind of limits of uh, when feminists or activists fall into this kind of individualized sexual liberation as opposed to maintaining this kind of uh, structural uh, and systemic analysis which would lead to certain types of I think long-term and protracted solidarity which I think is necessary as opposed to uh, you know uh, what some people would now uh, refer to as kind of parachute activism where you just kind of you know, parachute into places and, you know, do some work and then not have a kind of lasting um, forms of solidarity. Yes, I think it's really interesting that the woman's reboot really uh, sought to reclaim the word onna, mm-hmm. which has a sort of kind of like a rough around the edges 
kind of like what more more working class connotation compared to fujin right fujin's very like bourgeois yes um, way of saying woman and you know jose is somewhat more neutral but they really wanted to use onna sort of have has a more yeah more yeah sort of working class connotation to it but yeah it's, i think they're still limited by kind of individualist conception of uh, sexual liberation and in some cases ended up reproducing the sort of colonial imperialist chauvinism and i was actually saving this question till the end but you know one of the tenets of radical feminism is that women exist as a class or even nation yeah uh, you you point out in your book that uh you know they women's reboot so they were inspired by black liberation struggle in the u.s and they thought mm-hmm. they thought that women are actually like black people right mm-hmm. and i think that was like internationally like globally it was a sort of similar tendency among uh, other feminists like radical feminists mm-hmm. as well do you mm-hmm. think there is inherent limits in radical feminism as formal feminism and as a, as a political movement? I think that's a very pertinent question because I think that on our current, uh, in our current political work and uh, the current political horizon has really brought uh, deep challenges to, you know, this, um, concept of woman and the binary system of woman versus man. Uh, and I uh, here would want to underscore and highlight how trans politics and trans liberation movements have not only um, raised our consciousness around what we, you know, consider cis, right? Uh, cis gender privilege or uh, this kind of um, this, default into, um, you know, cis normativity. And I think that when we consider radical feminism's emphasis on the category of u- universalizing womanhood or womanness, um, that can be uh, deeply problematic um, when it, you know, is not taking into account these kind of newer challenges to non-binary, genderqueer um, forms of embodiment and personhood. So I think that this is a, a, a very kind of interesting, um, you know, moment to reconceptualize then what are the limits of a certain kind of, you know, radical feminism. But for me, I want to also just, uh, in response to this great question say that when I am now thinking about radical feminism um, for the current moment and its political relevance, I think that I'm very much um, moved away from this idea of any kind of like right right, universal uh, category of woman's identity. But my use of the word radical is just more about going to the root of uh, systemic oppression and getting to, you know, the fundamental uh, issues or um, origins of um, current political systems uh, and problems. And so in that sense, I think I'm kind of using radical uh, feminism um, and holding on to that word for the time being um, and holding on to that term, um, even as we're facing, I think, really uh, important new challenges to its previous conceptions about, um, you know, womanhood as the political, or woman as a political subject. But I, I still think that, you know, uh, misogyny 
um, is still a continuing problem in this society. And um, misogyny, as we know, does not just affect women, but is uh, constantly used to uh, denigrate those people who are categorized as men as well by feminizing them. Yeah, I think you bring up a really important point about uh, uh, the politics of trans and non-binary liberation coming to the forefront and you know some some radical feminists uh, becoming reactionary right like a uh, mm-hmm. this, uh, yeah trans exclusionary radical feminism turf some of them were like work with conservatives against trans revelation struggle so yeah it is a sort of the, the new set of contradictions emerging and not to mention the class differentiation among women that you also uh, point out in your book the example you you use in the book is uh, Madeleine Albright. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, like we can also talk about Hillary Clinton and her whole campaign, sort of weaponizing feminism for in the service of imperialism, U.S. imperialism. Yes, um, and other there are many other examples as well. And it does raise the question of if there's such thing as a universal woman. And I think what you said really, uh, you know, do you have to take it to the the material conditions, right? Like the really yeah. uh, turning uh, the woman's question of woman's liberation towards anti-imperialist and anti-colonial and anti-capitalist direction. And uh, also the question of social reproduction, right? Uh, that a lot of feminists, including women, really theorized, you know, the family system and childcare and other, other any essential aspects of uh, this capitalist society that the uh, the woman uh, oppressed. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to sort of shift our focus to the question of violence again. Mm-hmm. And we talked about uh, sort of internal, personal, social violence. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I want us to talk about political violence. Mm-hmm. And this year, 2022, is the 50 years anniversary of the United Red Army incident mm-hmm. and that, that I talked previously about in an episode with uh, Chelsea Sandy Shooter and uh, mm-hmm. but this year is really the year and there's so many uh, media coverage of this event and you know uh, from the mainstream perspective and they obviously want to like treat it as a horrific event and um, no sort of critical perspective uh, in the in the bourgeois media coming out of Japan, but women's rebu activists are sort of critically in solidarity with the women uh, in the United Red Army. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about this campaign by women's rebu in solidarity with women in the United Red Army and its consequences that they suffered because of it? How does it relate to the questions of criminality and violence we discussed previously? Sure. Um, talking about political violence um, is definitely one of my uh, favorite topics, actually. Uh, and so I'm glad we're honing in on this uh, part of uh, the book. Um, so in terms of the United Red Army incident, um, United Red Army being the translation of Rengo Sekiglin, um, just a bit of uh Uh, context for those listeners who are not familiar with uh, United Red Army. Uh, The United Red Army was formed in 1971 um, as a merger of uh, one wing of the Japanese Red Army, 
or the Red, Red Army faction, actually, and um, another sect called the Revolutionary Left Faction. And I believe that you've actually uh, also spoken about this subject in your podcast with me, Shigenobu. Um, so this merger of uh, these two sects called the United Red Army went uh, into the mountains uh, to train for potential armed struggle uh, against the Japanese government. But the problem was that the leaders of the group turned against their own comrades, accusing them of not being revolutionary enough. And they had this, you know, incredibly idealistic uh, and unattainable concept of what a revolutionary was supposed to be. And in this process, they ended up killing many of their own uh, members. And this became known as the internal purge or lynching incident. And it was widely condemned by other leftists and new leftists. Um, And one of the interesting um, also aspects of the Uman Bib movement is um, rather than kind of just repeating the the condemnation by other leftists and new leftists, um, activists uh, in the movement, um, and especially vocal was again, Tanaka Mitsu, they organized to support the women of the United Red Army as you mentioned, Kota, and um, focusing especially also on how Nagata Hiroko was being represented in the media. And again, they, uh, the Umandib activists did not support whatsoever the kind of violence and that they engaged in towards their own comrades. But what they were responding to was the way that the state and the media were condemning Nagata in a very misogynist way and utilizing those kinds of discourses to um, target her in ways that the male her leader was not being um, reviled with that same kind of gendered language. So the way in which the women of activists organized in support of the women of the United Red Army is uh, this kind of intervention that I theorize in the book uh, called uh, I theorize this critical solidarity and you know it's critical solidarity especially because again they did not agree with the kinds of killings of their own comrades that um, they had committed but they understood that the condemnation of Nagata could not be um, in a sense um, I guess decoupled from the way that misogynistic discourses in the state sensationalized this and framed this in a way uh, to delegitimize all kinds of left activism. And even uh, those who were commenting uh, uh, commenting in the media were saying things like, oh, yes, this shows us that women should not get involved in political activism because they're too emotional and, you know, they are going to, you know, ruin uh, the kind of activist culture. So basically the women uh, activists understood that they were being also linked to the kind of fear mongering that the media uh, was engaged in to make people fearful of activists and activism and specifically, you know, left uh, and new left activism. Um, And so I uh, see the kind of media sensationalism around the United Red Army lynchings. Of course, it was a terrible thing that happened and it was horrible that people were turning on their own comrades. Um, But I see the media sensationalism uh, as kind of analogous in the way that the United States, um, you know, media culture also uh, focused so much 
in on, for example, Charles Manson, and that he was kind of uh, used as a, a stand-in to vilify counterculture um, because of the murders that happened that were linked to him. And so I think that this media sensationalism, even though these quote-unquote crimes were and murders were being committed, the way in which they are used and deployed by the media to condemn a widely uh, these entire, uh, for example, uh, resistance movements or counterculture that was happening, um, I think is something that we should be very uh, aware of because of the way in which any kinds of counter-hegemonic violence or extra-state violence um, is oftentimes just seen as something that uh, everyone should uh, vilify without even questioning, you know, what were the conditions, again, that led to uh, this situation. So just a couple last points on this. Umanib's support of uh, the women of the URA involved, you know, support groups going to their trials, visiting the women in jail, and creating a public-facing counter-discourse saying, um, in, 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 in the case of Tanaka Mitsu, she actually wrote uh, and would say, I am Nagata Hiroko. And her point of saying this was uh, motivated by a kind of philosophically driven political identification as an attempt to bring to light this dominant discourse, which um, was uh, soliciting fear and loathing for women activists in this uh, very specific way. And so, um, again, what uh, Tanaka and the other Umanig activists were doing, we're also seeing how the police state, you know, uh, and the surveillance that they started to undergo because they were organizing in solidarity with uh, the women of the United Red Army, that this uh, police surveillance and repression was something to be feared more than the kind of individualistic uh, interpersonal forms of uh, violence that had happened because that this would affect the entire society when once um, the, these levels of surveillance and policing were legitimized um, as a form of uh, preventing these kinds of incidents. So um, in that way, again, I do think that their critique directed at um, the state was an important way to pivot away from the sensationalization of these particular, uh, you know, violent incidents. Yeah, I think this was really a traumatic event for for the Japanese left in particular, and it's you know really stigmatized the question of armed struggle and its legitimacy as a whole, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, to the point of like uh, up to you know when they barricaded themselves in Asama Sanso, right? Like when they were mm -hmm. in a shootout. There, yeah, there was some public sympathy towards the, uh, towards the militants, and you know, I mean, people are aware of the, the greater violence that's committed in Vietnam, uh, Southeast Asia, and Japan was deeply complicit in it. You know, there's a popular, you know, there's still sort of a, uh, heat from the the mass movement of the the sixties, um, uh, late sixties, but it was really this this discovery of uh, the bodies, right, of the. Yeah that comrades, uh, this horrific event of mass lynching and that really uh, set the tone and allowed the Japanese state to basically limit the imagination of the Japanese left, really, or, or Japanese society in general. And really, like, it allowed them to say, like, if you become radicalized, if you subscribe to revolutionary politics, 
this is where you end up, right? Yes. So it's yeah. so it sort of it does it's controlling in that way as well. And it's still very much alive today as well. Like especially this year, right? There's so much coverage of it uh in the media because of the, the anniversary. Another incident, this year's also the anniversary of uh what is often remembered as Lot Airport Massacre. Uh mm-hmm. but for the Palestinian struggle, it's called the Lead Operation. And uh, the Japanese Red Army uh, was another organization, not to be confused with the United Red Army or Red Army Faction. It is a different organization that came out of Red Army Faction nonetheless, but it was more uh, international in focus. And uh, yeah, I had Mei Shigenobu on his podcast to talk about the legacy of uh, Fusako Shigenobu and her work as an internationalist uh, in service of the struggle for Palestinian liberation. And this incident is also uh, often used to sort of propagate this discourse of terrorism. And again, like if you if you on the revolutionary left or even support Palestine, this is the event that comes up in, in the public consciousness. And but at the same time, this is the context of this is very different from the United Army. Like it was basically like intra-left violence turned towards other comrades. But the legacy of the Japanese Red Army was uh, was different. They were, yeah, in service of uh, revolutionary internationalism and specifically the liberation of Palestinian people. Yeah. The physical walk towards end. Both you and I said to a part of. Olive Tree Collective to support uh, Shigeno Fusako, who will be released in May this year. And um, yeah, we've been working together on this with May and other comrades. And you also talk about Fusako extensively in your work as well. Mm-hmm. What is the significance of uh, Shigeno Fusako to the genealogy of anti-patriarchal and anti-imperialist feminism in Japan and internationally? Uh, as well as the question of political violence that we've been talking about. It's been great getting to know of your podcast through Mei Shigenobu, and it's been an honor to work with Mei in anticipation of Fuseko's upcoming release on May 28th, 2022, after over 21 years of her unjust imprisonment. As someone who's been working in the prison abolition movement for over a decade and as someone concerned with the history of feminists in Japan, um, Fuseko Shigenobu is such an important figure as the longest held woman political prisoner in um, history, in history in Japan. So her upcoming release truly marks in it this important historical moment where we can recognize uh, that although the state may have caged her body, even with this excessively long punishment, the state has not been able to crush her spirit and her commitment to collective liberation. As you mentioned, this is the 50-year anniversary of the LID operation. And so on this uh, 50-year anniversary, I'd like to raise four points. Uh, first, uh, that the three volunteers determined to demonstrate with their lives this ultimate act of revolutionary sacrifice for the sake of the larger Palestinian, uh, for the sake of the larger cause of Palestinian liberation. Uh, 
They were able to give their own lives. Uh, they were willing to give up their own lives as non-Palestinians to resist the colonization of Palestine. Um, second, these three Japanese men who volunteered were ready to sacrifice um, their lives to eliminate um, an enemy target who was doing mass-scale violence to Palestinians. The enemy target was Aron Katsir, who was very close with Ben-Gurion, um, the founder of Israel. And um, Aron Katsir was a leading Zionist and developer of biological weapons for Israel. So he was involved in war crimes against Palestinians and other Arabs by using biological weapons. So he was not an innocent civilian. Um, the third key point is about the deliberate misinformation that has been propagated for the last 50 years. The master colonialist uh, narrative has wrongly blamed the three volunteers for all the deaths and the injuries and has hit, hidden the issue of uh, Israeli crossfire. The most influential academic on this topic to date, Patricia Steinhoff, finally revealed in um, 2007, over 30 years after the operation, uh, that she was in the airport after the operation and it was evident to her that there was probably Israeli crossfire, which has never been properly reported as potentially responsible for civilian deaths. And this um, raises the problem of how knowledge and misinformation that scholars produce can cause profound harm. The fourth and final point here is that for the last uh, 50 years, uh, the master colonial narratives of Japan, U.S., and Israel have all blamed the three Japanese volunteers and even wrongly blamed Fusako Shigenobu, even though she had no part in the planning and it was planned by Wadi, Wadi, Wadi Haddad of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. But to bring up the question of uh, Fusako and political violence and her you know, I want to situate her within this larger and longer genealogy of anti-imperialist feminism and um, anti-patriarchal uh, um, modality of being. I would, you know, I guess begin by saying that Fusako uh, was deeply influenced by her father and in her writings, she writes a lot about her uh, relationship with her father. But at the same time, she defied uh, patriarchal norms for women. Um, even the fact that she became right a leader of uh, this revolutionary underground revolutionary organization that affirmed the right of armed struggle um, in itself, I think, is obviously gender nonconforming. And in addition to um, rejecting the typical, you know, Japanese life path for women, which would be to marry and become right a Japanese man's wife in the Japanese family system, instead. Uh, Fusako Shigenobu, she devoted her life to the cause of Palestinian liberation and the fight against U.S.-Japanese imperialism, um, a kind of structure that I think, uh, Kota, you were referring to earlier in the broadcast where we can see, right, Japanese uh, neo-imperialism is kind of being a continuing junior partner to uh, U.S. global imperialism. So, I place uh, and conceive of Fusako's within this longer legacy of radical and revolutionary Japanese women whom I mentioned earlier in our podcast, uh, those like uh, Kanno Sugako and Kaneko Fumiko, whom you can read about in uh, Mikiso Hane's uh, great book, Reflections on the Way to the Gallows. 
And um, one thing that I think all of these uh, Japanese uh, revolutionary women have in common is that um, they could grasp the fundamental nature of Japanese imperialism and how it's rooted in the emperor system and how uh, Kanno Sugako, Kanako Fumiko, and Fusako Shigenobu or, or Shigenobu Fusako were willing to give up their lives, you know, by even taking this kind of direct action to fight against uh, imperialism and uh, criticize these, uh, how n- Japanese nationalism is tied into this imperial system that is, you know, expansive and causing harm and invasion to other uh, uh, people that they are colonizing. So um, just, I guess, one more comment about Fusako is I think that while many people, let's say regular people, academics and intellectuals who believe they understand how the system works um, and they may be critical of it, um, one thing that, you know, obviously distinguishes these revolutionary women is, uh, the, you know, your average person or even academics and intellectuals are not willing to put themselves at risk to change a system that is fundamentally discriminatory and is reproducing all kinds of harm, you know, economic harm and physical harm and uh, so on and so forth. Um, so in that sense, I think that even if you understand and criticize this system, a lot of these critiques are ultimately, in effect, non-threatening critiques and can go on continuously, you know, ad nauseum without actually changing the system. But those um, like Fusako who are willing to challenge the system um, in these kind of direct physical manners uh, will have been criminalized and repressed and targeted by the state for extermination and even execution. Um, specifically in Fusako's case, after the lid operation, the Israeli government sought to assassinate her, and she writes about this in her in her books. Um, and uh, she was placed on the uh, kind of wanted list, uh, Interpol, uh, since 1974. And I think that the question regarding the question of political violence. I think this comes to the fore whenever we seriously consider what needs to be done to bring about systemic change, um, because systemic change is really what needs to happen for us to, you know, reduce these overwhelming uh, harms that are ongoing to, you know, humans, species, destruction of ecosystems, um, which are a result of state violence, uh, you know, global and state maintained systems of capitalism uh, with their forms of extraction and exploitation. So I think that, you know, most people are really taught and inculcated with this idea that the state, right, should maintain its monopoly on violence. And, you know, only the state has the right to exert these mass scale forms of, of industrialized uh, forms of warfare, whether it's domestic or international warfare, and even engage in, you know, targeted extrajudicial violence. Um, And because most people have been trained to think and feel that forms of counter-hegemonic violence uh, should be condemned, that is where I think we really need to start reconceptualizing and articulating an ethics, um, an ethics of political violence. And Specifically, I'm interested in um, articulating and uh, working on conceiving of a a feminist ethics of political violence. And that's also how I'm 
thinking about the life and legacy and the praxis of someone like Fusako Shigenobu, who was a, you know, a, such an exceptional and extraordinary person for the level in which she was, be, she was committed, you know, as a revolutionary mother as well to continuing her commitment to this larger goal of Palestinian liberation and fight against U.S. and Japanese imperialism. Um, so I think that in terms of political violence, what we've touched on today in terms of, let's say, the lid operation or, um, you know, even the internal lynching, the way in which the media is able to blow up these cases um, whereby in the case of LID, we had, um, you know, 25 civilians who were killed um, when, in fact, the target of that uh, operation was uh, Aron Katsir, um, who was leading uh, the development of biological weapons for Israel. So there were, you know, these definitely extra like what gets termed, you know, quote unquote, by the state collateral damage or these other civilians who were caught in the crossfire uh, with Israeli security forces. And then in the case of um, the lynching incident, you had about, you know, 14 comrades being killed. And I'm not uh, wanting to appear, you know, uh, sounding cavalier and saying, oh, these lives didn't matter because um, each human life is precious and each few human life that is taken unnecessarily affects, you know, so many people. But what I do want to underscore as we talk about political violence is the way in which the media creates these incidents as being so much worse than literally the millions of people who are being massacred by, at that time, you know, the U.S., you know, war on Vietnam. And given the kinds of levels of massacres that were going on, like one of the most infamous ones, right, being the My Lai massacre, whereas where U.S. soldiers went in and massacred, right, an entire village of, you know, 500 women, children, and elderly people, um, I think that this emphasis on um, when it's counter hegemonic violence, um, that type of political violence becomes so vilified compared to the way in which, uh, you know, ordinary civilians are oftentimes, you know, inculcated to accept, you know, all of the mass scale violence that is happening under the three letter word, you know, war, W-A-R. That is a kind of, um, I think, conceptual problem that we have because the violence is considered, you know, extra state violence. Um, and finally, I, I think one more note is like at this current moment, right, when we are witnessing, you know, the Russian war in and against Ukraine, so many people have pointed out like Ukrainians um, and those going to support Ukrainians are being lauded as heroes for fighting for their homeland. Um, my students have even pointed out in class how clear it is that when Palestinians do the same thing to fight back to protect their homes and homeland, the Western media condemns their actions as terrorism. Um, and the reason I bring up the word terrorism here is because, um, as we know, Fusako Shigenobu has been wrongly deemed a terrorist uh, by the media, by governments, by academics, academics in Japan studies. And even those allegedly sympathetic filmmakers who have made her the subject of their films. Um, but I think it's time for all those who have done so to make amends and repair the harm they've done 
to Fusako and all political prisoners, because I think that these standards of, you know, saying, okay, the state can um, kill and massacre thousands and millions of people, like with this kind of impunity, and um, those people who are fighting on behalf of uh, oppressed peoples are, uh, you know, categorized as terrorists, is this uh, much too uh, facile way to uh, conceive of armed resistance which is something that um, I think humans have the right and should have the right to uh, self-defense when their lives, uh, families, and homelands are being invaded by others. I'm really glad that you point out uh, this hypocrisy of, um, you know, <laughs> this international volunteer is going to Ukraine uh, to fight and you know it's they're lauded as heroes but you know if the leftist uh international volunteers did the same for palestine yeah they will be terrorists and fusako was called terrorist um and other japanese volunteers as well and you know it's overall it's very like it's a uh, last few weeks of this war has really showed that in japan the slogan Senso Hantai, like no war, is actually yeah. mobilized to support the war. Like it, it's uh, yes. to call for more sanctions on Russia, which, you know, is only going to escalate the situation. And it's really showing the, so, this legacy of the so-called post-war democracy mm-hmm. uh, is a very, uh, very flawed project, to say the least, right? Like it's very, the, the presence of U.S. imperialism uh, becomes almost invisible, right? Like it's it just Russia right. that's bad, uh, right? So, right. Um, but you know, I'd say not all wars are bad. Like you have to understand to this context of the, this colonialism and genocide. Uh, in case of Palestinians, starting in 1948, Al Nakba. Mm-hmm. Uh, massive displacement of uh, indigenous Palestinian people from their homelands, and mm-hmm. it continues to this day in the forms of uh, apartheid policy and ethnic cleansing and everything else. And and Palestinians have been struggling ever since 1948 to uh, for national liberation and return to their homeland and. It is a just struggle, right? Like it is, they have, Palestinians have the right to resist uh, this occupation, colonialism by any means necessary, uh, which is uh, even recognized by the UN, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, armed struggle is not the only way, like it has to be part of the broader mass movement, you know, such as the BDS uh, boycott, divest, and sanction movement, uh, mm-hmm. which is a nonviolent form of struggle, but it is a part of the broader struggle of a national liberation that's really driving it. And it is not whataboutism to talk about the, the greater violence that's really uh, hidden from uh, the plain view and uh, the media doesn't want to talk about. Uh, this concept of sacrifice, right? It's very horseshoed especially in Japan, like if you talk about sacrifice, you re- it really brings up this image of like kamikaze and, you know, mm-hmm. like this suicide missions during World War II and they say, oh, it's the left and right, you're the same. Kind of like I hear that a lot, uh, mm-hmm. this discourse, but I think it's really important to emphasize that 
to die for the people is not the same as to dying for the emperor or imperialism or colonialism, right? Exactly. And exactly. Kusako was really、uh, part of this legacy of revolutionary internationalism,、uh, not reactionary internationalism that's、uh, supporting US imperialism、uh, before the liberation of the colonized people. And、uh, it's really important to situate her legacy in that. In, in the fight for national liberation. And uh, uh, she was one of the many international volunteers who sacrificed their careers and sacrificed their, many of them lived in a relatively privileged setting and really、uh, laid their lives for, for the liberation of Palestinians.、Uh, even Rachel Corey,、mm-hmm. uh, who is a white American woman who,、uh, whose anniversary was also happened recently, like she. She stood in front of the, the bulldozer, bulldozer and, and she was killed.、Yeah. And she is remembered as a hero、uh, by the Palestinian、yeah. people. And same as Fusako and other o k u d a i r a and other, others who died in the late operation as well. They have the hero's grave in, in Lebanon. And yeah, even, even the children at the ref- <laughs> refugee camps, Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, remember.、Um, Uh, Okamoto Kozo、mm-hmm. uh, as a hero, as a martyr. So it's a very, very, very different discourse in, in Palestine and Palestinian diaspora compared to how they remember in Japan. Definitely. No, I, I really like the point that you're underscoring that we cannot conflate all forms of violence or you know, political violence. You know, we really need to be,、um, I think, specific. In terms of right, what is the context and what you know, why, what are the reasons they are,、uh, you know, dying or willing to give up their lives、uh, for? And so,、um, definitely、um, on that note, I think it's、uh, it is important to distinguish between,、um, for example, even if we do use the word war, like,、uh, you know, Shigenobu talks in her, you know, in her writings, in her books about, you know, yes, this is that, you know, that. There has been this war、uh, for liberation, you know, for Palestinian freedom that has been ongoing, you know, since uh, uh, for decades now. And ever since, right, the colonization, official colonization kind of, uh, uh, and the, you know, the quote unquote establishment of, you know, the Zionist state of Israel in 1948. And so on that front, I think that. I'm, I'm very glad that you brought up the, this larger context of you know, the Palestinian struggle. If you don't want to use the word you know,、um, you know, war of liberation,、um, we can talk about it as these you know, specific、uh, and long protracted、um, you know, struggles or、uh, the right of armed struggle as well as something that I think that、uh, Fuseko and uh, uh, many others affirm.、Um, As you know, we talked about earlier in comparison to what's happening with Ukraine.、Um, but if I can make like one maybe final note on thinking about Fusako as a feminist in this larger,、um, also anti imperialist and anti patriarchal tradition, I would like to read a quote in which、uh, that ca- kind of、uh, symbolizes、uh, Fusako's non heteronormative uh,、um, life and She writes, quote, Beyond blood relations, family is born from mutual support and understanding among those with shared experiences and time devoted to giving one's life to protect each other.
end of quote. So in her words, um, I think Fusako moves uh, really courageously beyond this conservative and traditional idea of what the family is um, based on these kind of biological and blood relations to thinking about, right, forming a sense of family with people. And in her case, especially with those who are being colonized and oppressed um, and actually giving one's life to protect those others. And so I think that in that way, she is a really uh, remarkable model of uh, a kind of um, love for the people and willingness to sacrifice one's own freedom and one's life uh, for the other way beyond these ideas, traditional ideas of family and nation. So um, in that way, I think our work and our project together is about recognizing who she was, uh, what motivated her, and what um, principles uh, she stood uh, she stood by. And so I'm, you know, looking forward to continuing um, this collective project with you and uh, May going forward as we anticipate her um, release in the next few months. Yes, likewise. And I'm very excited to be part of this uh, project as well. And uh, both of us are reading uh, her, Fusako's autobiography called uh, Kakumei no Kisetsu, uh, The Season mm-hmm. season of Revolution. Yes. And what really stands out in the book is, uh, I haven't finished it yet. I'm just walking through the first uh, few pages, but um, her transformation uh, from being Japan, uh, being part of Red Army faction. And uh, I think RFA was uh, a Trotskyist organization. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they had this idea of like permanent revolution and sort of insurrection theory of like, you know, maybe this uh, upsurge of political activities and uh, mass movement in the 60s. It's like really creating a revolutionary situation. and uh, But they thought the revolution had to be international. And, you know, so they uh this sort of very an idealist concept of uh how revolution unfolds and it was sort of contradictory dynamic there that uh really that the cycle came out of but sort of her transformation from that to to being immersed in the palestinian struggle and popular front for the liberation of palestine pflp Mm-hmm. Uh, which she was part of is uh, it is a Marxist-Leninist organization. Um, mm-hmm. Even though they were not dogmatic, right? They worked, they worked with China, they worked with Soviet Union, despite the the Sino-Soviet split, and uh, and they even accepted Fusako, uh, Ishigenobu, and Okudaira, who were you know come from more Trotsky's background. And mm-hmm. but just seeing this sort of transformation, like she's sort of coming to realize sort of like the, the national. The national question right like how uh, uh there's actually one part of the autobiography that she says okay like it's really they're basically her realization that palestinians are fighting for nationhood like they're mm-hmm. fighting for their own state democ- uh, one democratic state and you know there's sort of like a, a difference between them and the pflp right so like sort of her asking like okay what do we do and sort of her and Ogdaira talking through these questions and her also coming to this realization through the production of film uh red army pflp uh declaration of world war um by 
Wakamatsu Koji and Adachi Masao. Mm-hmm. She narrates this process of like guiding them and being a translator and coordinator. Um, and this this one line in the film that says, "Revolution is a standby," which means that basically there's a uh, there's a lot of work being put into into guerrilla warfare. It's not just about battles, right? It's like it's about waiting, mm-hmm. and it's about building the infrastructure, like building tunnels and building uh, a most of all like mass support, right? Like being part of the community. Mm-hmm. And being part of the everyday lives of the the Palestinian communities, it's really what makes this uh, war, this struggle possible. Which is a sort of like, I think, part of the broader transformation of her Fusako's revolutionary subjectivity from the her previous understanding of sort of Indian Trotskyist uh, uh, understanding of world revolution to to the politics of national liberation. Uh, mm-hmm. Or revolutionary nationalism, which is not uh, mutually exclusive with internationalism. Like I said mm-hmm. earlier, like uh, PFLP had many international volunteers, not just from Japan but other countries as well. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, they're very accepting of outsiders as long as they, you know, they understood this. And reading through this transformation is very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I would like. I- just if I could just jump in on that note that you're um, describing her, right, her intellectual political transformation from, you know, the context of Japan and um, the Red Army faction as a Trotskyist, right, um, kind of organization to um, her immersion in the Palestinian struggle. Um, just to um, just kind of highlight this transformation and maybe to uh, put some kind of uh, clarity on the distinction um, if I could share from my own uh, political uh, journey, uh, political intellectual journey, I think that at so, at a, for you know a lot of my own um, time as a like scholar activist, I used to identify as an anti-imperialist. But actually, it was when I started doing solidarity work uh, for Palestine that I realized the the really significant and important distinction between being an anti-imperialist and specifically a first world anti-imperialist, you know, as someone who grew up in Canada, US, England, and and Japan, um, to that of giving one support to support an anti-colonial struggle. And for me, those are very, like, those are two different forms of kind of almost like political, um, consciousness and motivation, because rather than like being a first world anti-imperialist and thinking, okay, you know, yeah, that this is a, our ethical political responsibility, supporting um, an anti-colonial struggle is, uh, I think, a different way of um, a different disposition um, for me and is an important distinction. And so I think that um, it's interesting to read Fusako Shigenobu's articulation of that um, as she, you know, moves from the Japanese context into um, into her immersion and support and work with uh, the, you know, popular front for the liberation of Palestine. Yeah, certainly. And uh, she, yeah, she also talks about frontline versus rear, right? Front versus mm-hmm. rear and like what's her role as a, as a Japanese revolutionary and like this really interesting philosophical question about like what does her solidarity work mean within the broader like international perspective and mm-hmm. you know what does her activism in Japan like how can 
Japanese people or people in Japan contribute to liberation? Like, is it to build a revolution in Japan or is it to, to go to Palestine and immerse themselves in their struggle? Like, it's,、um, I haven't finished the book yet, so I don't know, you know, what type of、uh, conclusion she reaches in later on. But it is a really sort of, yeah, like what, what is the role of the first world、uh, revolutionaries in the liber- like third world liberation? Like, personally, I think there's a pitfall in third worldism as well, right? Like, third worldism in the first world. Like, it's like, so you don't want to like idealize、uh, struggles in the third world.、Uh, like, it's not perfect. Like, you know, obviously they're humans as well. So they have flaws、mm-hmm. and contradictions, right? And also, like, very much. Obviously, the first world states, like the, the, these colonizing states, including Japan, are very much part of the, the world system of capitalist imperialism. So, these struggles are interconnected as well. So, I mean, this is a really open question for the left today as well.、Um, but yeah, it does really, there's so much to learn from, from this,、uh, this period of history of Japanese new left and its. Aftermath, or it's a, it's a continuation into the, the, the later decades. And it's a really, it is a 50th anniversary. It's a really great opportunity to look back and、uh, assess what lessons we can learn from,、uh, from their experience. And, and also challenge, like you said, these misconceptions and、uh, deliberate、uh, misrepresentation and demonization of.、Uh, Uh, Shigenobu and Japanese Red Army, and you know, the Japanese police is really ramping up the, their propaganda campaign as well in this,、uh, in this anniversary. And they're, they're running new commercials and new posters, and yeah, the state、uh, led campaign of criminalizing and demonizing revolutionary politics. So, yeah, yeah、uh, overall. I am very、uh, excited to、uh, Sako Shigenobu is going to be free and she can tell her own story as well, right? Me too. It's going to be a great uh, uh, and historic moment. And、um, I think that this story about her life and legacy、um, and、uh, her support for the Palestinian struggle is a、uh, to be continued story. So that is exciting. All right.、Uh, I think it's a good place to end our interview. Before you go, Setsu, can you tell us where listeners can find your work? Sure.、Um, I have recently、uh, <laughs> created a、uh, website, a personal website, actually, setsushikamatsu.com, I think. And、um, a lot of some of my writings are there, and it's also on、um, academia.edu.、Um, So,、uh, you could also feel free to reach out to me at、uh, setsu.shigamatsu at gmail.com. I'm happy to share my work, and、uh, the film Visions of Abolition or Revisions of Abolition is also available for free online、um, at visionsofabolition.org. So, look forward to hearing from any of you、um, interested in、uh, these discussions and、um, who want to continue to be involved in this、uh, collective movement work. Thank you so much, Koda, for this conversation today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Against Japanism podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the generous support of my patrons. 
without whom I wouldn't be able to continue this project. Big shout out to Weber, Christy Lin, The Peace Report, Mountain Echo 11, William Forner, Joma, Drew Harrison, Sean S., Aiden, and Andy. Thank you all so much and see you next time. ママは8人の子供らと小さな車に乗り込んだ一人足りないそれは私なんで引っ越さなきゃいけないの夏目やしのカゴの後ろに隠れた私を「ママが言ったユダヤ人にやられちゃうよ」「パパは涙を流して子供たちにお別れのキスをした」「戦火を逃れてふるさとを終わる」半世紀過ぎても私は家に帰れない私の物語だけどそれはみんなの物語パレスタイン子供の物語ライララライラ「やっとパパに会えた」「一文無しになり家も店も取られ祖国を追われた」「戦いに敗れ父は変わらった」「いつパレスチナに帰るの?」隣なくした日々を語りながら十八年後パパは死んだハイパに帰る夢を見続けて土に帰るパパにオリーブの枝を添えた私は家に帰れない「パパの物語だけどそれはみんなの物語」「パレスタイン父の物語」「ライララライラ」
んだった「8月のある日祖国への旅に出た」「1万フィートの上空から祖国に帰るために」「幅広のレースの帽子で私は言った」皆さんベルトをお締めください私はこの木の新しい貴重です PFLP のチェゲバラ隊がこの飛行機の指揮を取りますパレスチナの海岸線にハイパーをはるかに見下ろして世界はそ知らぬ顔してる私の物語だけどそれはみんなの物語パレスタイン戦士の物語戦うこと戦い続けること二度目のハイジャックで友を失い私は奪還されたそれからバーシムと出会いリッダー逃走パレスチナの恨みと希望を背負って戦士たちは戦い続けた戦わなければパレスチナの存在も思い出に消えて私も母になり子供たちのために今も戦う我が母のように戦火を
半世紀過ぎても戦いの日は消えない私の物語だけどそれはみんなの物語パレスタイン母の物語ライラララ証言のために日本に来ました自由の戦士マリアンは無罪と訴えるためにあの時代は誰も自由の戦士だったそれがなぜ裁かれるのか裁判長あなたに訴える私はパレスチナを代表してきました祖国を奪われた民には抵抗する権利があるとそしてマリアンもその一人だと私の物語だけどそれはみんなの物語パレスタイン世界の友の